Welcome. I'm J. Michael Silver, and this is Foundational Steps, the show where I talk with people about the choices they make to get where they are in life now. In this episode, I'm talking with Jordan Gruber, a true wordsmith. His accomplishments as a writer and an interviewer are numerous. See if you can keep up with us as we bounce around from his life to philosophy and much more. Links to Jordan and timestamps for everything that came up in our conversation can be found in the show notes. Please support the show by leaving a comment or a review. I'd love to know what you're thinking. Check out our affiliate links in the show notes. Might find something of value. Enjoy the conversation. Awesome. Welcome, Jordan. Thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this for a while. Yeah, I, yeah, we've we talked about was it the end of uh, last year in December that we start first talked yeah, about? Yeah, early December. I think you asked me maybe mid mid December. Are you hearing those chimes? No, no, right. I can't hear the chimes. Right. So that's that's good. Um, yeah, I guess it was a while ago. Um, so yeah, it's good to actually finally get here. You know, I was curious. I was going through um, just a little. I don't do a ton of prep because I, you know, want to have the most organic conversation I can, but I was looking through the email you sent because I asked for a little bit of bio and, you know, was looking at your website and everything. And, you know, obviously you're, you're a lawyer, so, you know, you got your JD, but it seems like you've spent most of your career writing. Is that accurate? Yeah. I never wanted to be a lawyer. I did <laughs> want to go to law school and uh -huh. I did in particular want to go to the university of Virginia school of law, Mr. Jefferson's great law school. school, and there was a kind of a spiritual attraction. And I was one of those people who early on was very clear that most of the traditional jobs that I was suited to doing would be really hard for me to do because I didn't fit into the system. So when I heard someone like Tim Leary talking about people being cogged in the machine, mm -hmm. and yet I was, I was working in Manhattan as a grant writer after I got my master's degree from SUNY Binghamton. And um, I had already taken the LSATs and I got involved with insight seminars Okay. and I got, I had an epiphany during an insight seminar that I should go to Charlottesville and so I did that. I mean, that's, that's kind of unique in and of itself that at an early age, because uh, you were, you were in your early twenties before you went, when you first went to, uh, to get your JD at UVA. No, I was 25. Yeah. When I You're started. 25. So that's because I, mean, I got it's the master's degree as well. And I took sort of a year off hanging out in Binghamton and practicing martial arts and not doing much. So how did you figure out at a fairly early age that you weren't equipped or wouldn't be happy doing the quote unquote, you know, normal job? Because of the, the life of the mind and like the creativity and imagination and so here's, here's an absolute total conceit I have, but it'll be balanced out by something. I remember right. being, I remember being three, four years old and uh -huh. thinking, clearly I have one of the most powerful minds on the planet, but <laughs> my body is nowhere even like in the top half. What am I going to do about that? You know? And, and you so, were, you were three, four years old having this, yeah, this I really conversation thought, with yeah. yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And, and later on, you know, and I, I topped out in math and, and the, fifth or sixth grade, I did get a 12-9 on the math and verbal and the Iowa test. But after that, I was no longer like in the special math kids group. It was obvious right. that that wasn't my talent. So it was more, it was the words, it was the mm -hmm. writing. But also from that same age, I remember uh, taking a typewriter, an old Royal Crown typewriter and, and, and just randomly typing letters and then taking the paper out and running up to my mother and saying, mom, did I, mommy, did I make any words? Did I make any words? 
And in the background, you would hear my grandmother, whose name was Mary, yelling, Lola, stop him. It's not a toy. Don't let him play with it. So, you know, I was, wow. I was, I wanted, my mother will tell you that I wanted to be a writer as early as age five. Now, uh, you know, and my dream of what employment would look like would be that I would have interesting conversations with people mm-hmm. and that would be it. I didn't realize I would have to write everything down and then put it into an information database and then make mind maps and then iterate between, you know, three and 10 times on each. That's what you get paid for, not right. the conversations, but right. still. So when I did practice law for 51 weeks, 51 weeks. It's exactly 51 weeks. Yeah. <laughs> That's Trust awesome. Me. I, know, I, know, <laughs> I, know, I know this. And then I left for Gnosis Magazine. There was a guy named Gary who was of counsel. He was an older, he had a PhD in psychology and he was mm-hmm. like, Jordan, you spent so much time in law school. You did so well there. You were near the very top of your class. You've only been here a year. Give it another try. And I I couldn't do it. I was fantasizing about throwing a bowling ball through my big plate glass window at Cooley Godward. Because that's a good sign. That way they wouldn't arrest me, Uh probably. But I, you know, so I, I, I was, it was bad. And, and, uh, uh, I'm going to get a little emotional here. My, my, my wife's father died a few months ago. The only person who sat down with me and looked me in the eyes and said, if you really don't want to go back and can't go back, you don't even have to go back this afternoon. Is that bad? Don't go back. That's wow, that's amazing. So I did go back. You I were go married... back one more week, but then I left. Yeah. Did my you wife get... was very disappointed when I, when I made the choice to, you know, leave, leave the high paying career. Well, I mean, especially at that point in time, being a lawyer, I think had a certain level of status. I think now, you know, there's a little bit more stigma around it. I mean, it's still to some people, it's an incredibly honorable thing to other people. It's like, Oh, like, you know, we need another lawyer kind of thing. Yeah, so I think the shine was off uh, the shine already was by off, 1988. Yeah. I mean, oh, okay, yeah. we always said that one out of 10 of the people who we knew who went to law school with would enjoy working in a big firm where you're, you know, mm-hmm. it's a soulless march of hours for 10 years. And, you know, and if you survive and you go through that, you make seven or $800,000 a year or more. Right. But yeah. who, who wants to do that? I, I couldn't because, because also from junior high school, right? I'd been interested in parapsychology. And in mm-hmm. high school, I was already interested in philosophy. And the professor, the, the teacher would say, are there any other questions? And I would say, always say, what is the meaning of life? So I'd always been into that whole other side. And practicing law in such a formulaic way, fighting other really smart people for money day after day after day, it, it was just, it was, it would have killed me. I mean, it's kind of in a weird way, especially if you're, um, Oh, it depends on the type of law, perhaps, but I, I feel like there's a, a certain level of jousting. It's, it's like being a being a knight, you know, on horseback, but you're using words and briefcases mm-hmm. instead of shields and and briefings and you know whatever as your ammunition. It's and it's it's you're expected to put so much of your life energy. The last case I worked mm-hmm. on was Johnson and Johnson versus Amgen over something called erythropoietin, and the lawsuit was for uh, an infringement, and it was for $18 billion. And nobody had a sense, any sense of humor. So we had to go to Chicago into this huge warehouse with huge boxes, and your goal was to read through everything. Oh, this was, you know, so to find any smoking guns or counter evidence or anything interesting. Mm-hmm. Day on end, living in hotels, it's like, no, man, yeah, I'm that's... a creature. I'm, I'm a child of nature. You know, yeah. I cannot do this. So I didn't. So, I mean, you knew that that wasn't right. You tried it you, and then you got confirmation. The, the practicing law or studying law, 
did you have an ulterior motive? Was there anything else that like, was this just training to be a writer because of the research and the amount of writing you have to do just to get a JD or, you know? uh, I thought, I, I thought I could do it. I thought it might be public. I mean, in, when I was in college, I spent a semester or two volunteering for the New York public interest research group. Mm -hmm. And then later on, when I worked very briefly for the earth Island Institute, I got to meet David Brower and, but I'm, I'm really not all that good in working under other people's direct control yeah. and and watching me it usually doesn't work i'm i'm too i'm not an alpha male but i don't like having an alpha male or the equivalent over me and i rebel having people like one of the this is funny and i think i can say this in this book that i've been helping my client with on meditation at one point i needed to basically edit a section in real time <laughs> on the screen in a zoom call with him and i felt like i was in like fifth grade and it was a test and he agreed with everything but i was like talking out loud and going no we have to have it like this way and that way because look we use this word here got to turn it here and but when we were done i realized that when i'm observed you know for whatever reason i'm one of those people that when i'm observed it often i notice it and it often affects me so i like i used to have an office downtown now i only have this office in the basement but it's, it's, you know, I'm very productive. Yeah. It's interesting. You say that about, you know, having to write in front of someone. I, uh, I'm kind of, I don't know, I'm kind of an undercover writer, um, or, or maybe at this point in time, a repressed writer, because I'm not writing as much. Like I'll, I'll have ideas and I'll write them down. I've got blogs that I've written, but never posted. Um, but I got hired years ago as an actor, um, to be the lead in this film, but I read the script and I'm like, I, I can't, I can't accept this role. And the producer was like, well, would you, you know, she knew she'd read some of my writing in the past. And she's like, well, would you consider doing a rewrite on it? And, and then, you know, play the role. And I thought about it. I was like, yeah. I was like, well, how much time do we have? And, you know, is the writer involved? Well, the writer turned out to be the director. So it was a writer director Ooh. situation. Uh -huh. And I was like, and, and how's he going to feel? And it, the general consensus was he'll be fine. You know, just kind of walk him through while you're making the changes. So for a solid week, and I only had two weeks to do this because it was low budget you know, or really no budget practically. So I had, a, uh, I sat there for a week. I had two weeks. I sat there for a week and I, I wrote in front of them. I was Xing stuff out, telling them why I was getting rid of characters and condensing characters and, you know, why things weren't working. Right. And after a week, I realized that a, I don't know that there was anything that he was going to say boo to or no to or whatever, because he just didn't have the experience I had. He didn't, he didn't have, well, he trusted you. Yeah, he trusted me. I proved myself. And he just didn't have the background that I had, you know, I've spent my entire life studying story and character. And so although my main focus wasn't for writing, he just I gained I gained his trust. And once I realized that at the end of the first week, I was like, I'm killing myself and slowing myself down to do this in front of him, when I probably could have done it faster without him. And, uh, and then I realized also I'm too far along in the process uh, and where I'm going with this thing that I, I can't really go back and just throw it out and start over again, uh, which is what I really should have done. I should have gauged him first, found out where he's at, won his trust, threw his script out, and then done, done a pre page one rewrite. Right. 
just that, using the same character names it's and the same easier concept? to start from scratch than to actually pick somebody else's stuff especially if they're watching yeah no no kidding it was it was brutal and well, how'd, the, how'd the movie come out it's okay i mean you know one of the things that i was told because like i said it was a, a two-week thing so i finished the direction we were taking it and i wasn't i wasn't excited about the script but i i thought there was something there and i and what i was told is that we're gonna have time because this is kind of like a, a friends and family kind of thing it's a such a, a low budget no budget project and everyone's doing this on favors and and you know thanks very much kind of thing so i was told that we're gonna have time on set to play with things, improvise and figure it out. Well, the producer that told me that and hired me because of the situation on the ground was almost never on set, not her fault. This is just the, you know, the, the difficulties of making a no budget film or any kind of budget film. She had other obligations. So we didn't get to play. We didn't really improvise. And so we didn't get to expand or fix any of the things that I didn't have time to do on the page. So the lesson was, if it's not on the page and you're not happy with it, then it's never gonna end up on screen. Probably <laughs> and, not. Uh, you've gotta fix everything before you start filming. And, and then if you come up with new amazing stuff while filming, great. Otherwise, don't expect it to be there in the end product. And it wasn't, so. Oh, wow. It was a great lesson. It was, a, it was a, an exceptional, exceptional experience. I met amazing people. Um, but, you know, say la vie. <laughs> not everything can be, uh, you know. No, not everything works out the way you hope it will. No, I don't know that much. <laughs> I mean, it could work out better. It could work out just different. But I don't know if much actually ends up the way you think it's going to end up. No, actually, I have a thing where before I go to a place or meet someone or go to a restaurant, whatever it's going to be, mm -hmm. I try to imagine like what the space will look like. Yeah. And I'm almost always 100% wrong. You know, it's like, no, it's not like that at all. So yeah. it's just funny. The world is very diverse and we're only kind of aware of the thing we're focusing on at any given moment. No, <laughs> it, it takes a single object. Yeah, it, it does. I mean, it, you know, I think that's part of the the consciousness, the way our, our consciousness works. We're only able to focus on so much, you know, the, the brain chemistry or the ability to, you know, light up all the different regions can, can, you can light up hundred percent of your brain over the course of the day, but you're only going to really be able to utilize it consciously, you know, right. one point at a time. So William James's metaphor, and I learned this from Jim Fadiman, mm -hmm. my co-author and writing partner and all the rest is that you think of like a glass bottom longboat going down the Mississippi right? Wherever you're over, you can shine a flashlight down and see what's there. Now, it's not that that stuff that's on the other side of the river is always unconscious, right? You can go over there and start doing dream analysis and lucid dreaming and hypnotic mm -hmm. inductions and taking psychedelic. You, you can get there, but yeah. you have to, you know, move the boat and then you're not going to have a lot of time to do the other things that you were just set out on the boat for. Right. Maybe. Well, James doesn't say that, but yeah. <laughs> right. No, I mean, it's an interesting thing. And I mean, ultimately, I think maybe that's part of the reason why we have a linear experience of, of life or of existence is because, you know, you, it tracks, it's easier to track, it's easier to keep track of and, and create a story to manage all of the data and information when right. it's done through a linear progression. 
but again, it's a linear progression of selves moving in and out in my model. Yeah. So it's, 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 there's always something about me that's the same. I do believe in soul now. And yeah, like yeah. Gary Zukov's the seed of the soul. I feel I have a soul and it's a single autopoietic evolutionary dynamic that holds me, this Jordan Gruber together. But mm-hmm. within that body, being, mind, soul thing, I do have these different minds or selves, and they do mm-hmm. go by patterns. And so, yeah, we end up, because that makes it even more complex. So we do tell ourselves basically a linear story. I mean, I guess there are people alive who are living like Data in Star Trek and are consciously aware of all the timelines they're, they're in. One thing I can do pretty reliably sometimes, not really, but occasionally is feel the future washing backwards into the past. Yeah. There are certain sorts of events if I feel certain sorts of ways, I kind of know what's coming and I'm not really surprised by when it shows up. And I, th- I think and we all have access to that all the time. But well, I also I mean, think we have access to telepathy and everything else. We just yeah. don't use it because we don't allow ourselves because for a lot of reasons. Well, it also, you know, let's let's say that we're fully telekinetic beings. It would massively interfere with a linear story model. Because, you know, the conjecture scientifically is starting to look at, well, the speed of thought might be faster than the speed of light. I don't believe they figured out how to quite quantify that or yeah, measure it. Test that. Interesting. But I've heard that kicked around, you know, because there's a lot of a lot of physicists, theoretical physicists and even um, uh, research or uh, what do you call it? Um, practical physicists, you know, the research. Um, Experimental physicists. Like the guys that, at CERN and, you know, yeah, with the big colliders. And a, lot of, a lot of these guys are starting to move towards philosophy because, and guys and girls, guys, you know, people, um, moving towards philosophy because they're not able to do some of the research and some of the work they want to do experimentally or uh, theoretically because the language and the, the models don't allow for it. Where right. if they go on the, uh, if they go towards physics or excuse me, philosophy, you know, it's still a mathematical model philosophy. Most people, I don't think understand that philosophy is a mathematical model. It's a science. A lot of it. The logic certainly is. And, yeah. you know, and everything that's, I mean, that's one huge 20th century strain of philosophy. I mean, you've got people like Wittgenstein and, you know, mm-hmm. those guys. Yeah. They, they can show you that you, and what do we end up with? Uh, is it, Goodell's theorem that you can't ultimately prove anything because you always need another reference outside of the thing you're proving. Yeah. So we're always in kind of an infinite regress or infinite progress. Always. God, you know something? You might be the one and only person I can ask this of and 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 get a response. Um, I, I I've this has come up in at least one other conversation episode that I've had. I came upon a word, uh, item potent, item potent. How do you spell that? I D E M P O T E N T. Yeah, I've never heard that. Let me write it down. It's a it's a fascinating word, and so I was sitting there thinking, and I did a um, I did a Google search for um, a mathematical equation to uh, where it has infinite possible permutations of the equation, but the outcome uh-huh. is the same no matter what. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so I, I typed that into Google. I said, what, what's an equation or what's it called where you, know, you can have a um, infinite possible der- 
derivations, um, deviations, and and no matter what happens, no matter what happens, it's the same outcome. And item potent came back as the only option. Huh. And it's a word from the mid 1800s, huh. and uh, it's it's um, I think one of many. Um, I think it is the like item is is an item, um, uh, not like an item, but that's escaping me again. Every time I bring this up, I I have brain fart. Um, so I'm maybe, looking. Maybe you're maybe you're not supposed to know it. Maybe there's like some hidden force opposing your mental knowledge. This is the key for the forces of good to finally liberate themselves. And well, so this is the interesting thing is that the word now is synonymous with coding and with with uh, computer programming because oh. computer computer programmers have to program in um certain certain binary um you know every, obviously it's all binary you know code um in order to get no matter what the customer wants for for instance for for shopping they can go and look at 15,000 items but they know no matter what they look at it's only, the only things that are going to end up in their their uh, shopping cart are the items that they click on. So item potent, you know, that would be an an example of an item potent equation, where no matter what they look at on this on the store's website, they're going to end up in you know in their um, cart shopping cart. They're going to end up with only the items that they clicked on specifically to buy. Another example, which is the reason why I was looking this equation up is because life is item potent. So you're born, you can do any infinite um, number of permutations in your life, and then you're going to die. So no matter right. what you do in your life, you're still going to die. Right. So it, it would be, oh, item I, potent. I see. Yep. So you have infinite, it's, you have infinite possibilities within the construct of your life, but you have only one possible outcome, which is death. Oh, so nice. it's fascinating to me. And, you know, being a wordsmith that you are, I thought, well, maybe, and also because you have such a background in um, philosophy and psychology and um, altered, alt, um, you know, other ways of thinking that, you know, it might be something you've come across before. No, I have to say I haven't. I very much like the fact that you're so fascinated by words. I'm that kind of person too. And every now and then I'll run into a word that, well, and then there's that thing when you say a word enough times and it's not even real anymore, which I don't know what that's called. And it can be a very simple word like brush or something. And you go, is that really it? But no, item potent. No. Yeah. I just looked it up. It's a linear mat algebra matrix thing. And yeah. you know, it's as you described. So that's a, uh, that's curious. And it reminds me of this crazy stat that I read a few weeks ago, mm -hmm. which is that there's a trillion years of stars followed by 10 to the 106th, 106th years of black holes, which by analogy is like one second of stars mm -hmm. followed by, by a billion, 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 billion years of black holes. So that's what science Jeez. says right now. So if that's, that's true, the current, yeah, that's the current, I, you know, I, I I had no idea why that's true and I wouldn't have the math and it's, yeah. and you know, if you read enough science fiction, like, uh, uh, Werner Vinge's deepness upon the sky, you know, mm -hmm. the idea of variable physics is available where everything, the constants that we always assume are true 
A, that, that's, we don't know. We don't even know that a piece of plastic that's going to, you know, deteriorate in a thousand years is going to, you know, how do you know? A yeah. thousand years hasn't passed. You don't right. know, but science likes to say it knows those kind of things, right? Well, that's the interesting. So one of my favorite scientific studies along those lines is muons come streaming through our planet regularly, you know, tiny little quantum particles, the muon. So, right. and a muon, and nothing, nothing stops a, mu a muon, right? Nothing to my, to my understanding. I'm not a physicist. Maybe a black hole. Maybe that's well, the point. <laughs> maybe not though. I don't know. These things don't seem to be affected by gravity, um, right. but they decay incredibly fast. So, and they, and they're, they're traveling at, you know, basically near light speed or light speed, you know, extremely fast. So mm -hmm. the decay of a muon happens in like 0 0.00001 second or whatever, whatever the actual measurement is. And so they determined that, well, if they decay that fast from the time they enter this part of our atmosphere and the time they hit the earth, there's only going to be X number of muons that make it to earth because of the decay, right? Right. So they went and tested that and they were off like exponentially off. There and are many more, many more muons than they thought. Many more hit the earth than, than or went through the earth than they expected. Right. And because they come in and out of existence and, and they decay so fast that like, you know, but, you know, they figured out how to track them. They figured out how to measure them. They figured out how to. Are, uh, are there muons going through our bodies right now? Right now. Yes. Like more than one, like, like a lot. Trillions. Like, <laughs> I think it's, in the, I think it's in the trillions, maybe it's only in the billions, but uh, to the, to most people, the difference between a billion and a trillion, it's, it's so right, difficult. No, we're, 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 we're culturally enumerate at that level. Yeah. Yeah. Culturally. Yeah, exactly. That's a great way of putting it. We're culturally enumerate at that level. I love that. Yeah, it's true. I mean, most um, people can't go past. Yeah. Um, even imagining more than 10,000 or something is hard. Yeah. Even when a billion. Really even a million, as much as it's talked about, is completely amorphous, you know, in reality, when you look at it, like, like 10,000 is probably, you know, people, probably anyone listening is like, no, no, I understand 10,000. I understand 100,000. But like, a million dollars. So, like, I used to do um, home insurance. And so in selling home insurance, um, you talk to people who buy, you know, $100,000 homes, $500,000 homes, multi-million dollar homes. And it's interesting, the conversation with different people and the concept of a million dollar home versus a, you know, a $200,000 home, you know, it, it starts becoming very amorphous. Anyways, that's a whole other right. conversation. So let's just back up. We were on muons yeah. before then we were. So wait, let's hit muons for one second because there's oh. there's something there that's I think you'll find interesting. I got, my, I got my tweezers and catch one. Yeah, catch one. Catch one with your micro tweezers. Like micro tweezers. Uh, they, what they found is that the internal or the operating speed, if you will, of a muon is slower or no wait faster than the operating speed it's slower or faster yeah it's faster than the operating speed uh that we exist in that we vibrate in so mm -hmm. our perception is that there's going to be fewer that make it to earth but because they're operating at a higher speed time yeah. slows down so we're going at one tenth speed so 10 times more muons make it yeah i see, I see that yeah that's interesting that effect. 
That's and an I interesting way of dilating yeah. consciousness and putting things on. And, you know, and then we get back to ideas like Ken Wilber in Integral Theory would talk about uh, even subatomic particles having prehension all the way down to the quark. And, That's interesting. you know, are they on some, you know, what is awareness? I mean, I'm a panentheist generally. Mm -hmm. I do think that the divine is interpenetrated in all of material reality, but also transcends it. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know. That always made the most sense to me. Yeah, this is, it's interesting. We're going to be, it seems like we're going to dig more into philosophy than anything else for the time. We being. don't have that, to, we can go wherever you like. Well, I'm, I'm wrestling with some of this stuff today. So it's come up more than once. And I feel like you're a good person um, to bat around some of these things. And, you know, at this point in time, um, you know, I don't have the audience to know what they're going to love or hate. So this will just be a good, you know, test of okay what are they what are they loving or hating go where you want to go and do what yeah. you want to do with whoever you want to do oh yeah all that <laughs> exactly you know, i mean because i'm not i'm not i'm not expert in these areas right you know i mean i would only say i'm an expert in two things which is the healthy cells thing and rebound exercise that's about all i'm really and maybe in writing maybe but yeah. not i wouldn't even say that but in, in produ production writing being able to put out a lot of output when I have to. It's not so much expert as just, you know, that's what I do. You take it in, you, you're able to process it and then churn it out. And I'm able to work with people on all different levels. Sometimes yeah. people have very detailed outlines of what they want their book, like the cross-border wealth guide up there. He knew everything. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people come with vague ideas and they've written a few pages and you do a lot of research and you, and you know, it's always all over the, and sometimes you can finish people's thoughts. I'm pretty good at knowing where the thought train is going, especially if I'm with a client and we're, you know, and they can start talking and they can't find the words, but I can find the words because yeah. thoughts are like ocean waves that break on the shore of more than one mind at once. Mm -hmm. So if it, I know where they want to go because that's where I want to go for it to be coherent, if that makes right. sense. Well, no, I mean, and that's why philosophy for the most part in the Western world is, is considered a science in mathematical is because it has a formula and if you are, you know, a critical thinker tracking a line of thought, then the logical explanation or the logical conclusion has to be pretty much one thing based on the parameters that they set forth, you know, and ergo, you know, the different schools of thought. No, so, I mean, there, there are different philosophical ways of, of proving things for sure. And that's been going mm -hmm. on for thousands, thousands of years, right? Starting mm -hmm. with uh, Pythagoras, right? And, yep. and, before, and before him, uh, oh. I'm forgetting who was before him, but, you know, it goes back a long, it goes back a long way. And, you know, even though the, the dialogues of, of the Platonic dialogues are yep. a kind of proof of their own, when you read a whole dialogue and hold it at once, which almost nobody does, especially on the longer Platonic ones, but like something like the, the ones where Socrates has been sentenced to prison and it's now time for him to, to, to leave the Crito and the, and the apology. It's like, it's like having watched a symphony. You know, if you if you know about symphonies, you realize that the notes you heard earlier, you're 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 aware of them when it closes at the end. I, I, I study this on by listening to the teaching company course on great music by Robert Greenberg. But I listened nice. to many hours and I, and I learned and my brother played the whole classical canon. So mm -hmm. I, I kind of get it. And it's the same thing in these dialogues. They're, they're making it. You have to really hold the whole thing to see why they were even writing this and what they were trying to show to people. And like the bit about Socrates going you know what, I'm not afraid of death because nobody has any idea what happens when we die. Nobody. So yeah. I'm just going to keep going, you know, and, yeah. and then he, of course, in, he ended up saying, I'm going to stay loyal to Athens, 
which is like my city and my mother, rather than escaping, like my, all my friends are trying to get me to do, right. I don't want to escape. This is, this is how I live my own, you know, life of truth and justice. So, yeah, I mean, I, Socrates is interesting because, you know, he wants to look at, and this is one of the things that I feel like, I, I don't know if this is still taught, but the Socratic method, as, as I understood it or was learned it when I was a kid was, you know, you ask questions through conversation to make sure that you're having the same conversation. So, you know, for well, instance, it's to do that and to, and to elucidate the fact that the person to whom you're asking the questions already has the answer within them. So, right. you know, one of the, one of the most famous ones is with Mino, a slave boy, and he gets him to prove the uh, Pythagorean theorem in real time. Oh, that's and cool. I don't know. I'm yeah, not familiar it, with that one. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah, you should read the Mino. It's it's not the that Mino. long. And yeah, and he and he and he and he, put, and he has this whole group of people saying this boy is ignorant. He doesn't know anything. And Socrates has this way of talking, where he says, "Well, if you see, you know, a bird flying like this and this on a tree, what do you know about that?" And by the end, you know, he has, you know, in law, what we call leading questions, right? He's right, totally, right. totally leading the witness. But yet, there's still an element in there of he he knew, and which also mm -hmm. brings us to Immanuel Kant who uh, asked the question, how are synthetic a priori questions possible? Uh, you know, how can you know that two plus two is equal to four before you ask the question and answer it, and yet we know. Mm -hmm. And so he spent a lot of time saying, you know, basically saying we had a faculty that knows, which really doesn't satisfy us anymore, but you know, people have been thinking about this stuff for a very long time. Oh, thousands of years. Yeah, and I mean, uh, you know, the current conversation, the big, big philosophical conversation, I feel like that most people want to have right now is the simulation theory. Like, you know, are we living in a simulation? And, right. you know, to me, that conversation is only made possible because the matrix was, you know, released in 1998 and introduced people to the concept of, of life is a dream as a simulation. Yeah, no, it, it was brilliant and powerful. Yeah. And, you know, we have Elon Musk saying the odds are trillions to one that this is a simulation. And um, I think, you know, I'm a pragmatist. Mm -hmm. So the only Native American philosophy. And I want to believe things that are going to make my life better and, mm -hmm. and, and that I can otherwise define as good. And the word good is its own definitional thing. There's nothing underlying the word good in philosophy and we can talk about that. And so as a pragmatist, it's not gonna make any difference to me how I live my life if it's a simulation. Right. You know, I mean, now that's not to say that when uh, the guy who did self-development for smart people, Steve Pavlina, do you know mm -hmm. his work? I, I don't, I've heard, oh, I've you, heard you, of the- you should, He did a three hour thing about, if this is a matrix, here's how you can interplay with it. And Steve is kind of straight. You know, he wouldn't do well in any of the clubhouse woo-woo rooms. He's not right, like that. Right. But he had a huge audience in the hundreds of thousands of people. And he give, makes his money by the high-level courses. Right. But he had all these ways of just saying, start pretending it's true for a few minutes that if you, you know, start asking the universe for things, it will give them to you. Yes. Start li he didn't guy. say okay. this, but like, yeah. start living a, what Rob Bresney would call a life of pronoia. Start assuming that there is a vast conspiracy dedicated to your enlightenment and satisfaction and pleasure and joy and happiness and your ability to give your gifts and all those things. You know, and if you start taking that true, what actually happens right. is the question. And the, I, I would say the kind of pop culture version of that is Pablo Coelho's book, The Alchemist. Yeah. 
you know, when you there, follow your gonna bliss, be. the universe oh. conspires to help you. Right. And The Secret was another one, big mm-hmm. bestseller that was very much like that. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that, you know, things are probably, I don't know, things are more complex than that, I think. But, you know, maybe I not. I mean, that- but first of all, how, how long can you sustain that? Because I'll go in these business rooms, these mm-hmm. hyper 10x business rooms on Clubhouse. And their, their advice is always, if you have a thought or an idea that's not in line with your 100% success and 10x in a year, then just banish it. Don't let it come up. Either way, and I'm going, you know, healthy self says that doesn't work. Healthy self says you've got to listen to that voice because it might have some valuable information that you're otherwise ignoring. Yeah. And you're going to need to learn to work with that part of you anyway. You can't just kill it and suppress yep. it forever. If you try to do that, if you succeed, it'll make you crazy and you probably can't do it anyway. So instead of trying to be a single-minded fanatic, you know, really work with all of these parts yep. and all of these voices. And, you know, and having said that, there are different things we can all do that, you know, we know we should do like colon ta, the whole, if you don't track it, you can't change it. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I struggle with just a couple of things like eating too late at night mm-hmm. and, and um, sometimes too many, uh, uh, too much cannabis late at night. And that'll, that'll stop you from sleeping. Yeah. And it's, and most it interrupts of your me, dream cycle. Yeah. Yeah. And most of me knows all about this. Mm-hmm. I've got a whoop tracking band and I wrote an article on sleep. And, and yeah, you know, the part that wants to open the refrigerator and eat the pudding is really a different part of who I am. Okay. So, you know, one of our points. Yeah. This is okay. This is an interesting kind of jump to something deeper because you're you're an incredibly smart person you've been very successful as a writer and you i mean you've got like the degrees more, i'd like to be more successful if you know anybody who can get us a national review of your symphony of selves and the new york times the washington post because i know there's reviewers who do psychology books in those yeah. magazines who would recognize the medal of the work as they said in the lord of the rings it's right, you right. just have to pick up the book and you know it's an important book yeah. But we can't we can't buy a national review, as it were, because hmm. we're really trying to, you know, uh, induct a paradigm change and nobody wants a paradigm change. <laughs> well, it's I think it's one of those books that is going to be picked up in the not distant future. And the reason why is because everyone's looking for something, but no one's able to see in front of their face. You know, no one wants to be fighting with their friends and neighbors and family. But right. we're all fighting with our friends and family and neighbor because we've been asked to pick sides and dutifully, you know, as as good members of society, as we're trained to be from a, a wee child, um, we pick up the mantle and we pick sides, you know, especially in America. America is is I listened to an incredibly successful uh, businessman. He he created the uh, movie picture uh, company, a legendary film. Oh, wow. Um, yeah big big powerful they're top top tier oh yeah and he he's he's done numerous things i'm blanking on his name of course um but he's done numerous other business ventures you know he's extremely successful he's also he he his band opens for the rolling stones so this guy is a multi-hyphenate of the highest order um i know who you're talking about actually but i can't remember who i can't think of his name anyways Anyone who looks up, you know, founder of Legendary Pictures is going to find him uh, or who the band opening for uh, Rolling Stones is going to find him. I'll do it. Um, Keep on talking. So what's interesting is, uh, you know, I lost my train of thought. Where was I going? So it's founder of Legendary Pictures. You were saying nice things about me and I interrupted you because I couldn't stand <laughs> the compliments, I think, is where we were. Fair. Um, Thomas, Thomas Tull? 
Thomas Tall. I think that's it. That sounds right. Till Tall? T-U-L-L. Yeah. Well, let's not get stuck stuck there. You and I could get pretty ADHD-y with each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is fine. I mean, this... Yeah, because who's to say one train of thought isn't... With a thousand different trains of thought, we could go down. Which one? But you're in charge. Which one should we jump on? (laughs) Choo-choo. And choo-choo our thoughts. Um... I, we, we've kind of played around with this, this idea of uh, philosophy for a bit. Oh, I, I know what I was, I was going to go for is um, in your history. So, you know, you recognize, you know, thoughts and thought patterns and so forth. And um, you've got the whoop and, and everything else. So how, how much have you tried to create a a mindfulness practice for yourself? I try all the time. I mean, you know, I do, I do a breathwork pattern. Mm -hmm. It's a very simple polyvagal pattern. It's a breathe in for three, hold in for three, breathe out for six and hold Mm -hmm. out for three. So it's one, one, two, one. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'll move it to two, two, uh, no, to, to four, four, eight, four. So it's three, three, six, three, or one, one, two, one. The pattern is one, one, two, one. I usually do it as three, three, six, three. And sometimes I do it as four, four, eight, four. And I'm doing that a half an hour a day while I'm doing other things, while I'm bouncing on the rebounder over there, which, Mm -hmm. you know, and I do sit and do a, a kind of conscious gratitude practice. And, but, you know, sitting in a regular mindfulness practice has always eluded me as it has, uh, my, my buddy, Jim Fadiman, uh, and uh, I, in fact, I, I'm finishing, you know, we're in the last weeks of this book on mindfulness. I understand, but I feel like I go into my own flow and pattern of flow states, partly with the bouncing, partly when I'm writing, and I do work the breath pattern. I mean, like when I'm with my men's group, we meditate for 20 minutes right. you know, by Zoom or in person. I mean, I don't dislike meditation, Um but I, I just don't, I'm just, you know, and do, I always feel oh, bad in these rooms where so do you, the first thing people always, and I mean, I, I had Rick Hansen, who is a very famous author now, I was a therapist for a while. Mm-hmm. And he was like, why can't I get you to meditate every day? And I went, it's, it's, you know, it just doesn't work out. And so that's an excuse. I clearly, if I really wanted to do it, or someone's going to pay me a million bucks, if I did it for a month, I'd do it. Well, but, maybe, you know, maybe not though. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you, it, it seems to me that you identify meditation and mindfulness as the same thing. Is that, is that well, accurate based no, on what you no, just said? No, that's a conflation. And in okay. the book, if we go out of our way to talk about great differences, mindfulness really so, yeah, I would say that I'm a lot more mindful now because of my understanding of selves mm-hmm. and having not just written about this book, but practiced an awareness of what we're talking about that has distinctly changed me. And so keeping that in your symphony of selves, we like to say mm-hmm. mental health is being in the right mind at the right time. Mm-hmm. But it's very closely related to mindfulness. If you think of that Viktor Frankl quote about there being a second after something happens where you can respond or not respond. Mm-hmm. So I'm much less likely to get into stuff with the people in my family, you know, my household or my daughter or people in the real world. I hear at age almost 62, Aries, sun and moon, very impatient, you know, sometimes obnoxious and too smart for my own good. I'm calmer and mellower. And I almost never say the obviously wrong thing anymore. I've learned not to go into the wor- the wrong or the worst self at the, the worst time, right. at the wrong time. So in a way that is a mindfulness practice yeah, as well. Absolutely. Because 
having an awareness that I'm always, and that includes for one, I've been down a couple of times. I had a breakthrough experience with a group of men that are my men's team in December. Mm -hmm. We were uh, working with a substance called white lily, which is actually legal and with a facilitator and it's a heart sacrament. And it was really profound. And since then I've, I've been in a deeper space and yet there's new challenges. My cat has yeah. diabetes. I freaked out. I kind of yeah. lost it until I got uh, I got processed by these guys, Brian and Hesby Kaplan, who do reverse psychology and humor with selves. And I told them how I wanted to feel. And they reverse asked, psychology asked with humor, reverse psychology and humor on 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 sub selves. So basically, okay. I was very upset about the cat, and he's going to have a shortened life. And what are we going to do? You know, right now he's actually got a monitor on, and he's starting to feel better. It's fine, but I'm very attached to my cats, and mm -hmm. a little bit. You know, I, I want to say hysterical, uh, and I was I was having trouble coming down. A few levels of people processed me, but it, it was still really heavy. And then they said, I I went into a room. They've been in one of my rooms on cells, and we know each other. But I said, Will you do your process with me? I'd like to experience it. And they said yes. And first, they ask you for your permission to do say anything that comes to their mind. Is mm -hmm. outrageous, contradictory, inflammatory, anything for just a minute each. I said yes. And they said, What do you want? And I said, Well. I want to be in the part of me that recognizes how much I love this cat. And it's going to be an intensification of the love and the experience. And it's good to be found out so early, not in the part of me that's just really unhappy and crying all the time. And so I said that. And then she, he went first and he said, well, I'm getting something from the cat. He's like saying the British, right? He's like, knock it off. Stop. Come play with me. This isn't that bad. You're being ridiculous. Yeah. We're going to have. And then she went and she said, well, what I think you should do is get your sword. Or maybe a gun. Maybe if you have a machine gun or maybe an atomic bomb and start taking it out on everyone in the world that you feel so upset about your cat. And she went on for just one minute. And when she was done, you know, first they had me kind of crying and then they had me laughing. Yeah, when yeah. it was all done, I was so much lighter. Yeah. They lifted like 85% of the load was gone because it got me to laugh at the part of me that was just like, you know, three or maybe eight years old and had just gotten a cat and was, it's like, well, that's you the know, old saying laughter is the best medicine you know because it just really worked it, it helps you minute. process it was a minute long each and i had mm -hmm. a, a micro epiphany they were great and so you know there's just another way that they've been working with cells for 30 years and they have their own gig and they absolutely know it's real and that's how they're able to work with it yeah they're yeah. fun their, their new book is about to be out it's called almost happy <laughs> that's great <laughs> Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting thing. I mean, I've been doing the the mindfulness thing, meditation and breathing exercises my entire life. And so, you know, for me, I had a very, very personal relationship with those words, you know, mindfulness, meditation and breathing exercise long before I had the experience of someone else's dogma or someone else's practice or, a quote unquote traditional um, form of meditation or, or mindfulness. You just, or like your house, you learned it in your household or from somebody you knew or my grandfather were, you were in LA and things were cool. And you no, were this right is actually right in DC, Northern Virginia, where I grew up. Um, oh, you grew up in Northern Virginia. Cool. Yeah. yeah, In the DC metro area. Um, and before I forget, my sister went to UVA. I kept on in the back of my head. I can't remember if I actually told you that. But oh, cool. she, she was a guide in the guide services. Both her and her husband were guides. They, you know, they met at UVA. Charlottesville um, was an amazing place. Is... So there was that little altercation a couple few years ago. Wait, say that again. Charlottesville was an amazingly oh, lovely place. Until yes, there was that until little altercation. altercation a few years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah evidently, 
Yeah, that was pretty horrible. And that was obviously uh, international horrific. news. Yeah. yeah, it was horrific. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, the um, my grandfather, you know, disowned my family when I was born and then came back into my family when I was four years old because he wanted to meet me because at four years old, um, there's a, a religious, uh, spiritual, energetic, you know, kind of... Um, opening blooming or whatever and so and he was he he had become a jewish mystic and kabbalist at that point oh, in really time in his life i didn't yeah. know that kabbalah says that that, that four-year-old kids have a special kind of induction portal i don't cool. know yeah That's i don't cool. know the details because i haven't studied the cabal in, in at that level to know right. where he got that from um he was also big into lucid dreaming like he spent uh -huh. cool. years having deep conversations with uh, a man that turned out to be uh, Rabbi Loria. Rabbi Loria, and this is before he became, you know, a mystic and a Kabbalist and spiritual. Um, he, he would have these dreams and would meet this man and they would have long conversations. And one day he decided he was going to go try to find this guy and find out if he was real or not. He went to, uh, I believe Israel, um, where Rabbi Loria uh, lived. Uh, although now that I'm saying that, I don't think it was Israel because this would have been in the 14 or 1500s that Rabbi Loria existed. Oh, Isaac Loria, that rabbi. Isaac yes. Loria. Yeah, yes, he's that very rabbi. famous. He yes. was blind, wasn't he? Eventually he was blind. Eventually, I think he was blind. Um, but my yes, grandfather... Of, my understanding, Your grandfather couldn't have known someone in the 14th no. century. Right. Uh, or at least not on you know, the way yeah, we the understand, problem. you know, um, so it, this is a dream, but he, but he had these dreams regularly. He remembered them. They were uh -huh. deep philosophical conversations. And as he started, um, because this would also have been back in, I think the fifties or sixties, early, early sixties, late fifties, um, you know, there was no internet and I don't know that you know, Rabbi Loria was easily searchable at that point in time. So I don't right. know. My understanding is he did not know who Rabbi Loria was until he went to go find him. Um, uh -huh. Because in the conversations, he knew where he lived. He, he knew the school he taught at, everything. And so when he went to go find him, he actually found the school. There's a whole long story. It's really interesting. Um, but the, the point of all of that is, is, uh, my grandfather became tapped in, so to speak, you know, if you're a skeptic, obviously you just think he's a loony, you know, old dude that liked the dream and was very philosophical. Um, but, um, so when I was four and he decided, no, no, I've got to go and meet my grandson because this is, you know, some sort of, you know, energetic awakening or spiritual, you know, big moment in his life. Uh, my, my family, I guess, was like, I don't know about this. Is, is this really a good idea? My dad said, fine, you know, but we're not having this conversation, this conversation or whatever. It was my dad's a, a hard, hard existentialist or atheist. And so my grandfather uh, would tell me stories. And the only way to describe them, they were very psychedelic stories because he would transport me. And I felt as a child, um, that his stories transported me throughout time and space. And I saw things 
through my imagination or through his imagination or a combination uh, of the way he told stories. How lucky and, you were. Yeah, it was an amazing experience. And um, and I also had dreams with my grandfather. Um, it, it was very, very difficult um, to, as a child, it was easy to process because it just is what it is. This is my life. This is what my experience is. As I, after he passed away, when he, when I was uh, 15, um, things got more difficult because I realized he was kind of my spiritual touchstone here on earth. And mm -hmm. so all of a sudden I couldn't talk to my dad. Uh, my mom wasn't really talkative about spiritual or, or non-physical experience, you know, the imaginary process. And, um, and so, you know, my creative world became my everything. And this just kind of became, you know, this physical existence just became, you know, what I had to do. Like, this is, well, I've got to do this, but the real world is my imagination, which is why acting and writing were like my end all be all, because that gave me a chance to play and be creative and live in this other dimension. Um, and I, I was good at this physical, you know, quote unquote, objective reality. It just wasn't my preferred state of being. So it, it was, um, but he was the one who introduced me to everything that, and I started studying martial arts at a very young age. I had at, by the time I was, I think seven, six or seven, I was learning Qigong um, from some dude at, a, at like a, a summer camp. And I would practice throughout the year between my grandfather, the Qigong uh, and exercises. And, and then my mom introduced me to books like the Tao of Pooh. You know, it, you know, it's a very simple Western use of Winnie the Pooh to introduce people to Taoism. And then mm -hmm. there's the day of piglet. Um, huh. And second. No, I didn't. I, I never heard that before. The day of piglet. That's yeah. Funny. Yeah. Yeah. The day of piglet. Um, because, you know, piglet's so virtuous and he runs around uh, full of virtue, but he is basically um, uh, overwhelmed with his virtue and has a very difficult time making decisions and worries about everything because he's so virtuous. So, you know, the virtue has to be balanced out with um, the, it's, you know, shit happens, you know, the, <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it, 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 great books, two amazing books, I highly recommend. I've given them away so many times to so many people, but that was my introduction. So between performing music, um, acting, writing, my grandfather and martial arts, I had an extremely uh, in-depth um, relationship with breathing exercises, meditation, and mindfulness long before I understood the history or that there, is, there, there are uh, many codified practices that have thousand-year-old lineages and longer. And real value that can be shown, you know, yeah. evidence-based practices. Yep. And so when I started finding those is when I started playing 
to understand that versus what I was doing. And I saw no difference. Uh, you know, it's like, um, it's like speaking Spanish versus Portuguese. You know, there's a lot of similarities, but they're very different languages. So, and, you know, to some extent, like I used to teach meditation uh, in my early twenties. And the primary thing I tried to explain to people was that anything and everything can be meditation because it's just simply extended thought on something and without allowing uh, anything else to distract you or come into it. So it's, it's basically single-mindedness. Um, and that was the way that I tried to explain it and the words I tried to use to simplify it for people because, you know, I was in North Carolina at the time and people in North Carolina just weren't big into meditation. And so I was trying to introduce people and create a community or, or, you know, expand a community that, um, that existed so that I could be a normal human being. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, and you have to find a way to fit in. And, yeah. and to and to also get in touch with your natural urges. Yeah. And so teaching, um, I never I didn't really directly teach breathing exercises. Breathing exercises, I worked with people through martial arts and through swimming um primarily and then i would also talk about mindfulness as this is how you reprogram yourself or retrain yourself to do anything and um it seems to me that mindfulness now as a practice of you know no judgment and um just letting whatever happen happen you're just going to sit there not in meditation but in awareness of all of the things and taking stock and no judgment and, you know, kind of like the first time you're seeing it, you know, all the kind of basic principles of mindfulness. Um, there's research done with, with active duty military showing that, you know, 12 minutes a day for four weeks, you can increase your focus, decrease your, your stress, sleep better, and just have quantifiable uh, shift in your performance and your well-being and and other metrics. And I know the, I know the work of Dr. Amishi Jha at the University yes. of Miami is. So I know her a little tiny bit, and we did an article on her, and she signed off on it. And I'm, I, I know one of her partners and uh, works in the law school there also. And yeah, yeah, th there's no there's no question it works. I would love to talk to her at some point in time. Um, yeah, but yeah, thinks, I mean, yeah, she's she's got a new book out, so yeah, I'm no, sure I'm sure it's a national bestseller. She's been making all the rounds. She's you know she's been on the Duncan she's the Trussell right person at the right and... time with the right machines that go ping, yep. and yep. she knows how to use them, and yep. she can like. You know, and she says things like attention is the brain's boss, yeah. you know, makes it very simple. Yep. You know, wherever you put your attention, that's what your brain is actually going to do. And yep. we can show it. I also like uh, people like Jim Rutt. Do you know Jim Rutt? I know the name, Adam. Not... He's got a podcast called The Jim Rutt Show that's pretty successful. He was, mm -hmm. he was the CEO of Network Solutions when it got sold to VeriSign and then is okay. one of the co-founders of the Santa Fe Institute. So I used to help him with a little bit of his writing. And nice. one of the things I learned from him is that every one quarter of a second, every one fourth of a second, your attention decides whether to stay on what it's on or move on to something else. And the longer you keep it on one thing, the more intense the desire to move it to something else is. And this is happening at quarter of a second increments. And they were hmm. able to sort of show that. That's interesting. I don't. I mean, yeah, I would have to read or, or listen to that more because it's one of those things where uh, 
I mean, it makes sense, but at the same token, I, you know, I know from, you know, extended meditation or extended, um, any exercise, physical, uh, mental practices or whatever the, you can, you can train yourself to, I wouldn't say reduce the urge, but you can nullify it. It's a little bit hyperbole, but Charlie yeah. Tart, the, the famous uh, psychology professor, professor of parapsychology, mm-hmm. who I've gotten to interview a couple of times, and he's a really nice man, additionally, and an Aikido guy. But he has this exercise in one of his books where he says, if you could actually stay fully focused on the second hand for five seconds before he hits the 12, fully focused, you would be enlightened. But you can't. None of us really can. I mean, maybe Osho could, you know, that sort of thing, or, yeah. you know, some some saint. But we're just, you know, so what we've learned is that attention takes an object. That's why you can't multitask. You might think you're multitasking, but you really can't multitask. And awareness and attention have this constant trade-off. The more focused you are on one thing, the less your overall, let's say, situational awareness becomes. Mm -hmm. And it has to be that way. But hopefully, as we get wiser, we know when we can and can't make those trade-offs, when you can't just really focus on something and ignore everything else you know so you learn i mean i think that's a i think that's maybe the most important thing is when you can and cannot make the trade-offs because you know there are certain things that you have to you know sure your your attention may want to wander or you may want to go and think about something else but you have to be able to say no no this is more important. Like if you're, right, yeah, you have to be able to keep a focus and keep returning. Yeah. But the, the research Amishi Shia has done and mm-hmm. others, maybe to others, this, I forget their names, but it's the number is that mind wandering, which is defined as you have a dis- discrete task that you want to do, mm-hmm. right? Mind wandering, which means you're focusing on something else happens 47% of the time. 47% of the time, no matter what we're doing, our mind tends to yeah, wander. Yeah, that sounds about now, that's right. Not, now, that's not true of everybody, right? And you're right. exactly right. When I'm I'm going through these 16 chapters for this book, and I'm through 10, and I've got six to go, and it's hard reading something for the fourth time, and then still having to work things out and get the words, and it's like, I have to focus or it will never end, is how it feels. Not that it's a bad thing. I mean, it's what <laughs> I do. But there are times when you're in the flow, and it's easy, and there are times when you're not in the flow, and you have to go... Yes, I understand you don't, this part of me doesn't want to be here anymore. You're really not supposed to sit for more than 30 minutes at a time. They're calling it sitting syndrome. Sean Wells is all over that. And, you know, you know, generally speaking, I don't sit as long as we're doing right now. Right. You know, just because it's bad for, it's literally all cause mortality rises 2% for every extra hour you sit a day. You know, it's, yeah, I remember like, the, uh, the Huberman, um, Andrew Huberman has a podcast and he's talked about uh, being active and, and so forth. And I mean, there's some truth to that, but then there's also the ability to undo all of that by other practices, movement and, and so forth. Oh, so, yeah, no, there's a lot of stuff we can do. And that's why, you know, I'm so into the rebounding because it's yeah. the easiest, fastest, most effective type of exercise I've ever experienced. Yeah. You know, but, I mean, and, that's, you know, we all got to do think. But don't you think one of the problems is our our obsessant need and I'm obsessive from a cultural standpoint to, you know, to find something else to redefine because, you know, perhaps instead of it being a bug that our mind has to spend 47 percent 
checking on other things, perhaps that's a feature. Perhaps that yeah, is right. a, a valuable it's thing. It's an evolutionary adaptive mechanism, right? We don't pay attention. We, we, we can get eaten or predatorized well, or, you know. Sure, there's that side. But I mean, you know, from another standpoint, I mean, that's that's the physical harm standpoint of, you know, being able to be alive and, and check in and, and look around and make sure we're not going to be eaten. But, you know, perhaps there's another factor, which is if you don't do that, you fall asleep or you leave your body or you no longer exist on this, uh, you know, in this conscious state. Yeah. Because if you think Basically about how our brains work, is yeah. what you're saying. Because like, it, it's like a car revs at a certain speed, right? right. It's, it's always going, you can't just, right, it's on. And so, you know, if you sit and focus, you know, like if I get into a meditative state, um, I can get pretty quickly into hypnagogic kind of like waking dreaming place. Um, if that's, if that's the desired location, I can, can also, go to alpha pretty easily. Yeah. So, and, and I can, and I, I would love, I'm one of these days I'm going to go and buy, just buy a brain trainer and just be able to see, okay. Yeah, like the like, news or one yeah, of those Yeah, I, I just, yeah, I want to see, okay, how fast and how quickly can I put myself in the different, you know, brain, uh, brainwave states? Because I think it would just be interesting and, and fun to see how fast I can yeah, get I have a friend them. on Clubhouse who, who is, you know, uh, struggling sometimes with her life, but she can almost write her signature with brainwaves. Oh, She's wow. like, that's cool. Phenomenally powerful. Uh, yeah but see that's the thing it's like you know once you once you tap into your rhythms your patterns and so forth then you know then you know from my personal experience it's like okay so this is part of what makes my personality the way it is this is part of what makes me make decisions this is part of you know why i'm interested in the things i'm interested in is because I operate like this. I rev like this. I idle like this. And mm -hmm. so that turning on the attention, that 40% mind drift or mind wandering to me, the way I've heard it talked about um, is more of, you know, it's like the only advantageous thing I've heard it mentioned is the don't get eaten. But I think there's another aspect of it, which is being alive which is that is the whole point of this physical existence well you have to, to be flexible extent. though right so like in 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 some of myself and some of my sub personalities or personas i can probably keep it to 80 to 90 if i like really want to get mm -hmm. done and all i do is turn on brahms yeah. i'm not also listening to a clubhouse room and checking right. stuff because brahms is my very favorite work music and and i will just or sometimes it's best really nothing if i really I, I'm going to have to say, I really want to hyper-focus. No, uh, you know, you turn down the external input dial to flat and I can do that. But there's other parts of me that are really bad at focusing. You know, they call mm -hmm. me ADHD boy sometimes upstairs. And, you know, it's like, yeah, but I'm really confident. I get all the stuff done. I manage this for the house. But there's other times I was like, you know, I'll leave stuff out or I can't something, find something right in front of me. I'm just like, and, you know, a disorganized I mean, part of the price of being able to focus so much is that some of my other parts really have to be desultory. They have to be able to just kind of randomly just go about and do whatever happens next rather than, you know, plan or be focused or anything like that. Okay. So on that, on that track, then do you think, or do you know that you were like that 20, 30 years ago, 40 years ago? Yeah. I mean, uh, it's always been true. I am, I believe I am 
what one of the guys in my men's group called a moving centered person. And this okay. one framework, there's three different types of, or four and the 1% or the move. I really don't know what I'm feeling or thinking until, oh, I really don't know what I'm feeling unless I'm moving, which is why I'm on the okay. rebounder an hour a day. And okay. I often, just like, I really don't know what I think a lot of times, ultimately, unless I write it out. I've been hmm. typing since for 56, seven years, you know, and I, my fingers will often know where I need to go when the rest of me doesn't know. But generally speaking, you know, when some people come into a room, they look at the environment and they see everything and they notice what's there. Other people are all about the energetic relationships between people and tuning into that. Uh, but they, both of those people stand still. For me, I always keep moving for as long as I can, kind of like a cat. When I first get to any place, even a big hotel, I will walk the perimeter if it's possible and feasible oh, just because just because I want to see what's there. I, you know, I know that the world is filled with uh, interesting, impossible phenomena. I do not, you know, materialism is false and I want to see what environment, you know, reality has co-conspired with me to present. So, OK, along those lines, then have you, you you've known you're always you've always been, you know, what is now called ADHD. Yeah, I don't really think I'm diagnosable, but I don't believe in diagnoses, but go ahead. Yeah, I right. certainly exhibit another conversation altogether. I can exhibit some of the traits. Let's right. put it that way. And and perhaps under certain circumstances, everyone's going to have those traits and everyone's going to test positive under certain test conditions. Right. Perhaps. So and different parts of me that is, you know, and that's why it's so hard for me to take ordinary tests. Mm -hmm. Real different parts of me, the different cells, if they're really real, they are going to have different characteristics. They will respond sure. to an Enneagram test differently. They will, you know, and so it's like, which part of me is up now? I'm, you know, trying to be the professional, you know, well-informed part yeah. with you right now, but you know, that's not well, all of me. Well, no, and fair. And I mean, it's, um, but it's interesting because, you know, you're in your early sixties now and, you know, a lot of what you're telling me you know, someone listening could, could basically say, well, sure. He's in his sixties and he, of course he knows who he is and, you know, and uh, that he likes to walk the perimeter of a hotel kind of thing. But at some point in time, you had to understand that about yourself or come to the realization. So, and that's something that I think is really interesting how, and when people come to, to certain realizations about themselves, because that's a lot of what, you know, gets in people's way, I think is not seeing some of their habits or some of their, you know, quirks, um, and knowing how and when to allow themselves to kind of go there or not go there. Is, it, is there a question? <laughs> At what point in time oh, that question. was it that you figured out that you liked to walk the perimeter or that you needed uh, okay, to do certain so, moving activities? So look, I always knew that I was in some ways, you know, now that I'm on Clubhouse and there's people who are way more woo woo than I am. And oh, yeah. <laughs> all sort of strange powers beyond ordinary human being. You know, it's like it's not the same. But even as a kid, I was always doing different paths. So this is a, a strange memory. But there was this kid around the block named Frankie who was three years older. But mm -hmm. I kind of had like a friendship crush on him. And then I had another friend named Andrew, who was a year younger, lived right across the street. And then Frankie's gran uh, grandmother held this party. And she said, whoever picks up the most stuff on the ground after this raucous party gets to go with me to Jamaica and hang out with Frankie. And I saw two or three kids like head for the big pile in the middle. And I thought, 
no, I'll just do the entire outside exterior perimeter where no one else is looking. Oh, but wow. it turned out, of course, that I didn't win because there was not enough out there. Right. But nonetheless, looking for those kind of outer breadcrumb trails. So I've always been into the psychic stuff and read all of the parapsychology studies and have interviewed, you know, Charlie Tard and Dean Radin and no uh, 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 Russell Targ personally. He's like a mm -hmm. family friend of my wife's because she knew his daughter um, who was, you know, uh, Elizabeth Targ, who was a very famous therapist who got money to study remote healing from the NIH. And mm -hmm. so like, I've always been around these people and I always wanted to come out to here. And I actually wanted to go to ITP, just of transpersonal psychology mm -hmm. when I was 21. And I came out and became a legal secretary in San Francisco, living by myself for little bit of time and I was way too young to go through with that whole plan and right. and I, I looked at ITP and I, I just wasn't old enough I came back when I was 24 and I just wasn't old enough to move out and mature enough and I went back and then you know to New York and then worked for a while and then I be, went to law school but I've always been drawn by this nexus of of conscious and philosophy and and badass magicians so like the pagan movement mm -hmm. and I've seen some powerful rituals that, I mean, I've never believed materialism is complete. In, mm -hmm. in the book, The Supernatural by Whitley Stryber and um, um, uh, 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 what's his name, Jeffrey Kripal, yep. there's this, 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 this thing called the honey jar story. And the conclusion of the honey jar story is that this academic was washing this honey jar in his sink and he, he dropped it into the sudsy thing and he heard a noise in the closet. And he went in the closet and he reached up to, and he saw something as a writing and he took out this big baking tin full of flour and as he did it became suddenly heavy and it dropped and he reached into it and he opened it and he pulled out this this a honey jar just like the one he was washing caked with flour and then when he went back to the sink it was not there so it's really well told and the guy is like a high level academic who's not into anything woo or spooky yeah. or anything and he got him to tell the story and so my experience of life has often been like that too many synchronicities, too many crazy things, especially, you know, from 21 on with psychedelics. I know, I know that we are co-creating reality right now. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that mind is, if not primary over matter, like let's say Hinduism, it's at least coordinate within its co-arising. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say. So since this is all really happening, you know, we're only using a small fraction of, of our potential, obviously. Yeah. All right. I mean, and that's kind of a, an agreement. I've always wanted more of it. Right? So earlier, early on in the conversation, when we were talking about philosophy, I was going to ask about idealism as uh, as a philosophical model, not as you know, idealistically. I would like to believe, or materialistically, I, I well, want. I know a what car. idealism is. So you know, do you do you think? I'm just kind of curious. This is you know part of the earlier conversation on philosophy, um, from the standpoint of where we're at right now in 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 our current conversation, cultural conversation, uh, materialism has been reduced to, uh, I just want a fast car and idealism has been reduced to, um, you know, kind of almost romanticism or, um, like it would be nice if everyone treated everyone perfect, you know, but it's not going to happen. So, you know, get, get, yeah, get in that, touch. But those, those are not the meanings we've been talking about. Those are like exactly. cultural deliberatives. So that, that's what I'm curious is in your sense, because you've, you've gone down a path since your early twenties of a very intellectual um, pursuit. 
And one of the things that I've noticed, whether I'm talking to an entrepreneur, very successful, multi-million dollar, you know, business uh, leader, owner, founder, uh, or, um, or I'm talking to a more of a creative who's also grounded in a, a very real and successful career as a writer, there is a element of, I don't know, for lack of a better word, esoteric um, or ephemeral yeah. talk of energy and talk of so, the I mean, intangible. It's, it, you know, I could see if this is where you're going and maybe you're not, maybe it's a little bit escapist. I mean, I remember being in college mm -hmm. and working for the New York Public Interest Research Group. Mm -hmm. We were anti-nukes and we were anti-testing. Banish right. Hoffman wrote The Tyranny of Testing in 1968, a Queens College professor. Okay. He showed even back then that the standardized tests were like, it's way unfair. And we all knew this. And I, I did have an epiphany back then in, mm -hmm. in college. And it was that politics as usual is not going to change anything. That the revolution really has to start with a consciousness revolution. Yeah. And that's why I was taking acid and reading Huxley and Leary. I met Tim Leary three times. I got high with him each time. Of course, <laughs> That's Jim, awesome. Jim, Jim Fadiman knew him very well. They were in yeah, each yeah. other's lives for many years. So, so it's interesting getting to hear Did some of the history. Did you know Abby Hoffman? No, never knew Abby Hoffman. Steal this book. Yeah. Never met him. No, he was, he was way before my time. I mean, you know, I was oh, fortunate. Yeah, I guess that would have been. Yeah. I was born in 1960. Yeah, so yeah. We had a he basketball court active, in my backyard, right. and when "Light My Fire" was the big song, uh -huh. it played all summer long while we were playing hoops out under the lights late nice. at night. So, and my brother and sister are both older, and so there was a lot of the '60s music. Mm -hmm. We had a piano, a baby grand. I remember when I was small enough to fit in between the two. The, the legs each had two spin, you know, legs turned. I could fit between it, and uh, the Moody Blues is always like one of the books that was up there. And you know, if you knew my musical taste, it's pretty sappy deep 60s you know the revolution is mm -hmm. still possible based on love and consciousness and awareness so you know i also sort of take responsibility or maybe i don't as a boomer because i knew also in junior high school i wrote like a hundred page paper called overpopulation a multiplying man where it was clear even back when in the mid 1970s the second report to the club of rome and silent spring made it very clear that we were on a path to destroying the natural world for real and including probably having a, a, an 80 percent overall human death rate in the next so maybe that won't happen but we knew and i was aware of that my whole life and freaking mm -hmm. out and then i decided that so i don't want to retreat you know epictetus's garden and mm -hmm. retreating the life of you know there is part of me that is like that i am a bit of a pleasure demon and we won't get into my habits and what i really like <laughs> but you know i live a good life i have a hot tub and an infrared sauna and cats and rebounders and yep. you know massage devices and on it goes right yep yep um but i'm also like part of the reason i'm so into what i'm doing with jim and why i'm doing a, a reading room every thursday for your symphony of selves we had uh this was our third today and uh, yesterday rather nice. and it was, it was over 100 people showed up and oh, that's amazing 20 25 are staying the whole time and a year ago i didn't have that kind of posse on face on clubhouse mm -hmm. rather but each of the people I asked to like do readers and co-mods, they're my friends now. Yeah. They are interested in the book. They yeah. like it. They appreciate my quirks and I appreciate theirs. And some of them, like Eric Grace, his mm -hmm. room and the Holy Human Club, 
I never thought that you would find me working with a path called the Adorata that focuses on Mother Mary because mm. I turned down Christianity my whole life. I was either like some weird spiritual new age guy or neo-pagan or a and Jew, now you're working Christian. with a group to talk about Catholicism. Right. Or, and, or and, the, and, and we've gone Mary. so deep Well, because I translated as being the goddess. So, you yeah. know, and, and also substances are a big part of my life. When I was, you know, in my early 20s on a full dose of mushrooms, not a heroic dose, right. but a, a substantial dose. I went to a pagan festival under the full moon, sky clad from Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And as, as we were singing and dancing, I felt Gaia come over the horizon and settle in and over us. I felt, you know, a personal direct contact with the, the earth goddess herself. So, you know, for me, so I mentioned the guy named Bill Eichmann who um, was very important to me. And he died a couple of years ago. What Bill would say was, all we really know is that we're animals on the surface of a planet and we're going to die. That's all we really know. Yeah. And, 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 and what we need to do is to kind of, we have to break our, our feeling that our primary vow is with anyone but our own ultimate infinity. You know, you want to make your parents or even Gaia herself None of those is, is my ultimate, you know, sovereign. You have to be your own self-sovereign on the deepest levels in which you are the ultimate. You know, we're back to Ken Wilber or Rajneesh, yeah. only one sky. There's only this moment with all of us, and we are that moment. We are the leading shock front of the Big Bang in this moment reflecting on itself. And there are probably others. Well, there are others, right? But right now, it's just me and you. It's easier to see. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, and that's the my mind or your mind might go, you know, and touch our, our loved ones, or our animals. And, you know, while we're sitting here talking, we, our minds may reach out or, you know, my dogs come over, you know, one of my dogs is, has come over many uh -huh. times to be like, Hey, we're getting close to dinner time here, you know? Yeah. And, you know, so even though that's going on in this moment, all that may exist, but this is our reality. And I mean, and that's, by design, well, and, you know, that you we get, agree and you to get that, into you these, the, these new notions of time. Oh, yeah. The other thing I wanted to mention to you. Okay, just a quick segue. Yeah, yeah. Side line. The idea that there's only one electron is also freaking me out as well as the black holes thing. I love that it, concept. That there's, there's only just one, electron. one electron. Yeah, that everything is happening once because it's time differentiated. Yep. So it seems like it's everywhere once, but really, it's everywhere once. And it's mm -hmm. another one of those things that I, I can't, I love it when I know my mind is like mathematically overwhelmed, and I just have to give in and just uh, appreciate what I'm experiencing. And the same happens with words. When people are in really good raps, some of my favorite orators on Clubhouse, mm -hmm. I couldn't tell you what they said or explain it back because I'm too in yeah. the feeling of what it means in a sense that beyond words. So I lose track and I know I couldn't follow it, which is why I know how to record things and write them down and all that. But yeah, there are but times I think there's when, something... you know, to that because you can take things in a multitude of ways I mean, you mentioned earlier like trying to sleep with um meditation tapes on and other tapes or maybe that was before we started recording um but you know that was <clears throat> you know there's being listening to a conversation like for instance podcasting i think some of the things that some of the reasons why people you know turn on a podcast uh especially in the audio only format is because they need something to listen to while they're doing something. Um, yes. And maybe it's cleaning, maybe it's driving, maybe it's while they're actually working on something else. And there's, I do all those. 
Yeah, and, and I do too, and a lot of people do. And there's certain podcasts that I might have to stop more frequently to listen to. There's other podcasts that I can just have on and I'm going to pick up anything and everything I need to pick up from it without having right. to focus on it. And right. I think I think that has to do with partially the way our mind works. And so the more similar, like maybe the better way to explain this uh, for what I'm trying to get at is if I get an audition and someone sends me the sides, my agent sends me the sides, I look at the words on the page, the faster I can memorize it, the, I know that I am more in sync and un, like, I just understand the writer. Like I understand what they're going for. I understand the show. I understand this train of thought, you know, like we were talking about earlier when you're working with a, a client, whether you're ghostwriting or co collaborating in some way, uh, you can, you know, where their mind is going. So even if they Actually, haven't gotten yeah. there, you can get them there because you see the logical conclusion of that. Right, I can get them there and I can pull out the word that they can't quite yeah. get to. And so that's and people what I do. who think very differently or are offering something new, like if it's an audition for me, I'm going to have a harder time memorizing that because the, the patterns and the rhythms are just not, the music that I'm used to hearing. And I listen to a lot of music. You know what I mean? I listen to a lot of rhythms, a lot of patterns, a lot of different, you know, thought, you know, modalities. And, you know, I try to make sense of it all and see where the correlation is. You know, it's like um, well, Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell took all of the historical uh, legends, myths, and, and, and brought them all together and parsed them out and said, okay, this story is in every culture. This story is in every culture. What does this mean? You know, looking at the human condition. And to some extent, I try to do that just for myself in where people are coming from. And so listening to someone that might be controversial, like I'll listen and understand. And sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's not where they're coming from and why people are, are resistant to them you know, and, or why they're not being understood or like, you know, someone that might be flagged as an anti-vaxxer who, if you listen to them is clearly not an anti-vaxxer, like stuff like that. Like I pay attention to, because for myself, I want to know why this person is being misunderstood or why this outlet media outlet is trying to, you know, push uh, an agenda that leans, you know, politically right or left. And in doing that, it's kind of like looking at different myths and from different cultures and saying, they're saying the same thing, and mm -hmm. they don't even know it. And or they don't want to acknowledge it. And I feel like that is at the heart of, you know, being able to, you know, reach people or being, or being understood, like you found a greater audience on a platform clubhouse, because you were able to speak, be heard, be understood. And then the people that naturally um, vibed with you, you know, you developed relationships with, which is obviously why you're here now. And, yeah. you know, that is fascinating to me, because I've vibe with most people I come in contact with. And if I don't vibe with them, 
it's typically because neither of us have had an opportunity to find out if it's possible. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. um, circumstantially, it's like, you know, I know someone's kind of giving me side eye at a party or something like that. And it's like, they don't know me. And therefore they're just projecting on you, whatever's going on for them. They're either projecting or they heard something and whatever they heard is, is tilting them. And sometimes I've literally gone out of my way to kind of poke that person. And Mm -hmm. I don't know that I've ever quote unquote, poke someone, not actually physically poke them. Um, unless it's like a tap on the shoulder. Um, I don't think I've ever done that and not ended up having a positive experience because people, this is my experience. If you're in person or if you're even not in person, like we are now where we're, we're focused on each other, um, will always do what they can, uh, in order to understand each other. Unless there is some preconceived thing that is yeah, that they're fighting they ahead of time, right? That right. they're not going to, and they're not going to be open. Yeah. Most people you, you will actually, yeah. I mean, although there's also some people that just, at least for me, dislike me instantly for no apparent reason. And it's always been that way, but I mean, but I, I, have, I, I don't know that they actually dislike you. I just think you trigger them in some way. And instead of right. dealing with the, instead of, confronting that trigger they just dismiss you because it's easier to dismiss someone than to to deal with why someone's triggered right or just assume that i'm massively privileged or i mean you know i'm thinking back to some of the people who i've had real americans we're all privileged yeah it's true so i I do have a quick story there i was taking I, i started group therapy at itp just to try it this was like 1989 and we went and sat down at Cafe Baroni, which is on uh, uh, El Camino Real. Mm-hmm. And it was very crowded, but there was this table that was almost completely empty. And I sat down to hold it for the group and gave someone else my order. And I sat down and this big biker, hugely tattooed and hugely drunk with a beard and the whole thing slammed down a mug, sat right next to me and said, my name is Dog Breath and nobody fucks with me. And I was terrified. I thought I was, you know, awesome. he had to be 300 pounds uh-huh. at least. And clearly, and you know, the whole biker jacket and yeah, yeah. And my people came back and we just kind of sat around him. And then at a certain point he turned to me and started telling me about all these stores that wouldn't let him come in and how his girlfriend was being mean to him. And he just kept talking and how sad he was. And eventually he kind of put his hands on his arms and fell asleep. And he he just <laughs> he just wanted to be listened to by anybody. Just and to be that's seen. you know. Yeah, that's a lot of what it is, right? Yeah. It's just being willing to be present enough to to let all of your stuff down and have no agenda and just validate other people, including not wanting to fix them, yeah. which of course is how men famously get in trouble with women. They want to tell us something and we want to fix it. And yep. they actually want you to just hear it and be with it with them. And that's hard to do sometimes. It, yeah, it, it can be difficult. If, if you're in fixer mode, it's hard to not then try to fix when someone says, I got this problem or what sounds like a problem to be fixed. Um, I just had a a weird thought when you were talking um, connected to the whole triggering thing. Um, You know, what if, I mean, this, this is, this is a very esoteric jump into, you know, 
we're all here to help each other. You know, what's the Ram Dass quote? Um, we're all walking each other home. Well, okay. So it's an esoteric leap to that. But what if the triggers, you know, someone who, um, you know, instantly doesn't like you, as you said, what if what's really happening is they're asking for help? Hey, you remind me of something from my childhood that's very triggering. Would you please help me get over that? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, on so, on, so basically you, you want, want to recontextualize like everything is a cry for help on some level. I, I don't and, know. And, this and, is just and, a thought and that, would, and that, would, be, just... that would be along the lines of, of people who say that, you know, it's all, it's all love unfolding. If you can actually yeah. hold even the worst things that are happening to you as love unfolding in real time, you know, well, then you would be enlightened. I, yeah. I used to believe enlightenment was like a state thing. In college, I tried to fast myself while taking psychedelics into enlightenment while reading Huxley, and it didn't work. I actually <laughs> got awesome, pretty though. sick and fucked up. And then yeah. they ate pizza to break the like a ten day water fast. Like how fucking stu- excuse me, stupid can you be? But uh, you know, and I gave up that thought of enlightenment as being, um, you know, a permanent state of wisdom and orgasmic bliss and power and all that stuff. You know, that was just my delusional. What do you think enlightenment is now? I think it's what Erwin Greif said it is. And Erwin Greif was a psychic I once had who's dead now. He would say things to me like, you want a plan? I'll give you a plan. Let go and let God. That's the only plan. And then he would say, you're not normal. You're not normal in any way. Forget about anybody else's diet or whatever. Your body will do whatever it needs to do. You're not like other people. You have all these things. But Erwin Greif also said that that enlightenment um, is just being perfectly fine with how you are at this moment. Uh, You know, and that's, that's like the belief that, that, that the thing that keeps you from being enlightened is the belief that you're not enlightened. And did yeah. you know that I still to this day control the and domain name enlightenment.com? Really? That's, yeah, a, it, that's a cool it, URL to have. It's a long story and it's in mothballs and it's been through many phases and I'm not selling it for less than 1.5 million. So don't even bother asking. for. <laughs> have you gotten offers even close? I got it. We had an offer for like in the quarter million dollar range once, but they wouldn't tell me who it was. And I not wasn't well. I, so there was a whole, we did have an active community and I did do like 80 people are doing micro blogging under our banner. It was called oh, Stir wow, Blogs. Okay. And we had, I did 15 interviews of people like Byron Katie and mm-hmm. Gene Houston and Jim Fadiman. And, and so I, and I was posting, this is in the you know late 1990s before anybody else was doing any of that stuff. And then we did the first ever Ken Wilbur audio interview. Mm-hmm. But then I figured out I didn't really know how to like what to do next and it didn't work out. And so I, I realized that the next time I enter a different business than the one I'm in right now, mm-hmm. and I do have an idea around rebounding on these body blades and building sensors for them that I will show you that you do amazing amounts of moving weight. If you rebound with body blades for 10 minutes, I want to have sensors built, make that a product. But I'm realizing that I'm not going to try to launch a product as an entrepreneur where I'm doing everything ever again. I'm going to have to, so it's going to have to be good enough where I've, my enthusiasm has convinced people of business experience and merit and who have their own levels of funding so that, you know, we realize that I really am like shirking or underhill in a fire upon the deep. I have a lot of great ideas and they come and, you know, I'm not that good at actually building or executing on the real world. It's a different skill set. And so, yep. I mean, in the rebounding in my own personal practice and all that, you know, I'm, I'm figuring out new stuff that no one ever has just because I can and I want to. Yeah. And, you know, the self stuff with Jim, we're taking it in new directions. But, you know, to actually like build a product and, and, and 
ship it and have money involved and no, you know, I mean, I could do a little of the law part, but you need people who know what they're doing or there's so many people out there doing so it's much. A, it's a, like you said, it's a skill set. And I mean, I've, um, I've done a little bit of that and I, I get to a certain point and like my, my father and I had a, a food company for a little bit and we had products in Whole Foods and we were talking oh, wow. to airlines about, you know, getting, you know, servicing them um, because it was just a higher quality, better food product. And, right. you know, the shelf life wasn't very long because the quality was high, but that was the whole point is that, you know, let's turn out, you know, high quality food instead of high, you know, instead of low quality food that lasts forever and ever. And, you know, we ran into some problems and basically what it came down to is either we need to really truly believe in this, be dedicated to it and invest, uh, really get investors to, to build a kitchen so that we could deliver the volume we need to deliver. And right, you, have to, you have to build that, the infrastructure to a whole yeah. other level. And it takes my friend, Steve McIntosh, who's an integral political author and who I went to law school with. And uh, he has a company called Now and Zen. They did the Zen alarm clock, which you may have okay. seen. And yeah, yeah, yeah. just a few products. And it's a, it's a national brand. And basically mm-hmm. it kind of runs itself at this point. But he spent years like going to China and talking to the people at the factory and mm-hmm. does the bell work on this triangular clock mm-hmm. that strikes at the right time and does this beautiful zen time you know is it going to actually get progressively louder does it you know it's like it was hard you know and, yeah. and it's like unless unless you know somebody and even then as soon as you're a couple of levels out but it's know, not it's just like one person who... you need to know it's multiple people that you need to know because either that yeah. or you have to be willing to you know build you know, you have to build the runway, you have to build the plane, you have to build right. the engine, you know what I mean? So either you need to know a lot of people to get something really done and off the ground, or you have right. to really build it all. And just having the knowledge to build Nobody it can all. build it all hardly. I mean, Elon Musk sort of, I guess, kind of eh, knows how he, to have people build it has, all in a lot of different areas. He has a lot of knowledge around a lot of key elements. And I don't want to discount his intelligence or anything else, but, and this is, this, uh, this is actually Peter Thiel's words, his former partner from, from PayPal. I know who Peter Thiel is. Yeah. I know Eric Weinstein a little. I met him at a party. All the women were were swooning, swooning at him because he's so super smart. Oh God. (laughs) That's, that's funny. That's interesting. But, um, but Peter Thiel basically called Elon Musk a Jedi salesman. He has the ability to get you like Steve Jobs was exactly pay him to paint his house kind of thing. And Mark Twain. Yep, exactly. And that, you know, you can be as smart as the day is long or 10 times smarter, but you can't do it yourself. Not really. You know, you can start things yourself, but you need help. Have you seen these genius rights rooms in clubhouse? No. Yeah, there's a, there's this, it's like it's an outlier guy and he puts out this whole meme that what we really have to do is find the super geniuses like Musk and support them because it's through them and them alone that all of humanity's next greatest innovation like and then he was talking about how like he had eight or 12 different dimensions of intelligence mapped out <laughs> and that somebody becomes a super genius when they're like seven standard deviations above the average on like five or more of these and it was all and then we they were talking about but he really thinks that geniuses are oppressed is his whole shtick it's really bizarre (laughs) you know i i understand that but the that would kind of go against 
uh, everything of history, you know, because the geniuses or the innovators will always find a way. And the ones that don't are doing it at the wrong time in the wrong place with the wrong people. Well, also two, two, two different views of history, the, the great man, great human, the great person theory, and the mm -hmm. great time theory. The, the great time right. theory says when it's time to railroad, it railroads. When right. it's finally time for us to go into VR and really get huge benefits, that will happen. Even mm -hmm. though they keep telling us we're already there, it still hasn't happened. And, I, and my experience with that is putting on an Oculus 2 because I was writing an article for a client about VR and working with a world-class expert, Marcus Shingles. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, and I loved it while I was doing it. And the day I finished the article, I haven't put the set back on, even though I actually went ahead and ordered the special like contact lenses that'll be perfect for my right. glasses and I won't have to wear glasses. I was like, I'm just not actually interested. It was kind of headachey and it was mm -hmm. cool. And I had to actually go to my knees when I was over the Iceland volcano the first time. And oh, wow. yeah, it's, it's really freaking cool. And it's every bit as good as the holodeck and Star Trek, the next generation, this world completely goes away. It already fools the brain. It's just going to get more powerful, but I don't, you know, I'm, I, it's not, it's not human life. So I, you know, we're going to see more and more people and AR and VR are going to blend seamlessly, even in the same devices. And there are yep. going to be people who get hyper addicted and spend nearly all of their time in VR. Yep. And maybe eventually, you know, I was thinking the sci-fi level, you know, people who just have the goggles and the things wired on and the, with the brain implants and, you know, we, are we already cyborgs? You know, people have argued about that. Yep. You know, when you're using your phone all the freaking time. You know, it's are an you extension, becoming a cyborg? becomes an extension, yeah. So right. you're the, already the technical yeah. definition of a cyborg is we're already cyborgs. Yeah. So uh, and yet and yet we're also wonderful human beings who have, you know, levels of intelligence and intuition and power that we have told ourselves. I mean, we're back to Wilbur again. The dignities and the dangers of modernity. Mm -hmm. The danger is that we flatlanded it. We only believe in material external reality in a very certain narrow way. And most of what's really important to us, we say, because we can't measure it, it's not even really real. And you and I know that that's ridiculous. This, this is very real. And but we get back to the word meaning, you know? That's, I think that's probably, um, dogs are going crazy. I'm, we're going to have to um, cut. I know, Bean, I know. Yeah, I know. We're probably um, near the end of our time. Yeah, we're, yeah we're coming close. We need to wrap up here in a minute. Um, I, I think that measurement comment, though, is, is a kind of good last note to sit on though because you know there's some of that is where we started as far as like you know how do you know when you got where you're at or how um you know we've kind yeah, of how do i know on. how do you know if you're actually more mindful and really the only way is to know that you don't make as many as the same mindless mistakes yeah. that's like that's how you tell yeah you keep track you keep so track yeah exactly <laughs> and i mean this is the thing it's like i guess the biggest thing that that you know, I want people to take away from this is that, A, it's never too late to start tracking and to start measuring. And there, you know, our conversation has ranged, you know, we've been talking for about two hours and our conversation has ranged a great deal um, and ping-ponged all over the place. That's and, the only sport I'm good at and Frisbee. Right. I, I was on the high school table tennis team. And, and so... <laughs> I'm trying not to get distracted by that, <laughs> but we, we understand each other. And I think anyone else listening would understand. And like, that's kind of the thing. It's like mindfulness to me is not giving yourself a hard time over what you are seeing yourself do. You know, there, there's a great quote. I don't know where, where it's from, 
Uh, I'm not good at always remembering where I find things, but the ideas that I love, I just kind of keep with me, even if I don't know where I got it from. Well, you make um, them yours in that way. But yeah, there's the there's the idea that um, uh, once once you are aware you're doing it, it's no longer a habit. So a habit ceases to be a habit and becomes a choice as soon as you're conscious of doing it. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that kind of well, and we can we can talk. You know, I mean, in the sales book, there are a lot of practical. It's not a it's not a how to book or a a workbook, mm -hmm. but we do cover a lot of the techniques and tools that other people use. And, you know, one of my nice. favorite ones is the Odysseus pact. You know, Odysseus was out there and he, he told his crew as they were heading towards the area where they knew there would be these sirens. They had heard stories. He said, mm -hmm. whatever I do, do not untie me from that mast. I am going to order you in real time to untie me from that mast. But if you do that, we will all die. Now, of course, everyone on the ship dies anyway, but him. So it was kind of a fake thing. But, you know, you can make these packs with yep. the parts of you that are likely to be up in real time when you've made the same mistakes that you've walked up the same path with the same people. And you go, no, this time I'm actually going to practice DNI, the mindfulness practice DNI. Do not interrupt. You know, go for a minute and be aware of your impulse to interrupt and see how that feels with you. Yes. You know, go for a whole day. Pra you know, practicing DNI for a whole day is nearly impossible for someone trained as an attorney. You know, it's just- Oh, that's interesting. But you can, but, but you can do it. And, and, and we keep, you have a thousand reasons for why it's now time to interrupt this person. And you know, you see it in Clubhouse, right? There are people who give other people much longer and shorter oh, yeah. ropes. And that's part of the skill of being a good mod and knowing how to do it. Although. There comes that moment more and more when people are are just flying their plane before landing their plane and going on for a really long time and then someone else calls out their name and the conversation the person usually goes oh did you sorry did i too long and the other person goes, well yeah maybe a little too long could you wrap and it's like <laughs> it's like that weird thing of you actually did interrupt them because it was too long and were you right but to see not? that's also i think the difference between a dialogue and a monologue because a monologue can go on and doesn't necessarily have a, you know, I mean, especially an internal monologue, theoretically, it doesn't have to have an end. It can go on for days, you know, well, and there are people whereas who are a dialogue like has, it, there's two parts and there's, there's a, uh, an interplay and there, there's a, a balance that has to take place. And like, that's the most interesting thing. Like you and I have kept up with each other and we've been batting hundred thousand ideas around and that's the interesting thing about a dialogue is that if if either of us were to try to recreate this as a monologue it would sound so weird and and surreal it wouldn't it wouldn't be real but the fact that we're both here having it and you know there's two sides of it it's real it's authentic and it's happening although although in our case I think we under I think you know we understand each other and we yeah. have a similar intellectual throughput speed that we're both flowing with and mm -hmm. similar parts of the world, similar backgrounds in some ways. And I've even got the three years of Taekwondo, not like you, but I did study with a world-class master and you know, I get it. And so I think we could one of us, I think you could do the whole dialogue because you're a pro. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> well, on that note, I think we're going to end it because that phrase is, is I, I don't even, I can't even handle that. <laughs> really? All yeah. right. All right. I appreciate that though. Thank you.
Wait, wait, wait. I, I want to sing one thing to end us out. Cause yeah, I, please. I'm not, I'm not good at it. It's from Moulin Rouge. Well, it's really, it's, it's David Bowie, but earlier it was Nat King Cole, and earlier it was at ease Eva. It's, it's Nature Boy. But the, just the end, this is my takeaway from this life, and I think it's still right, which is the greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return you know and i think that's i think that's it it's, it's the, beautiful it's, yeah it, it's that's beautiful giving and, and bowie I'm, I'm like a major bowie file which don't forget to leave a comment or a review i'd love to hear your thoughts new episodes every tuesday and short clips from each episode are on youtube thank you until next time don't forget your life story is yours to write and rewrite as many times as you want Oh, 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 oh